You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Captain C.J. Drew. Captain Drew is an artillery officer in the 82nd Airborne Division, Airborne All the Way. But more importantly, Captain Drew was Cadet C.J. Drew when the Modern War Institute was stood up in 2015. So I'm super excited to have him on the show as he was a part of basically the the founding of the organization. But we're going to talk about fires. I'm really excited to talk about fires and urban warfare and specifically in Ukraine. CJ, welcome to the show. Great to be here, sir. Thank you. It's really my honor to, to have you back and also to have, and I, and I, and he never lets me say this. And I said it a lot. We were at the urban operations course in California that we teach and CJ would just happen to be there. And I introduced him as the world's leading expert in fires and urban warfare. And I, I believe that, but we'll see. He's the smartest guy I know in fires related, and but but anyways, I digressed. Too kind, sir. <laughs> Too kind. Thanks, brother. Let's start with like we usually do. If you don't mind, could you provide our listeners with a little bit about your background in the army? You know how you got to where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. And if you uh, hear taps in the background, that'll that'll be a good sign that uh, I'm definitely near a military base. So as uh, Colonel Spencer said, my name is. Uh, CJ Drew, originally from Boston, Massachusetts, and went to West Point, and that's how I first met you. And it was a great time as I was a defense and strategic studies major and also an Arabic major. So I stayed pretty busy getting to travel a lot, doing some DSS trips to Israel, learning about urban warfare there. Ended up uh, picking artillery as my first choice and loved it every second. Uh, started off in the 173rd as a company FSO. Then moved up to Germany and was an FDO, um, then also an XO and a temporary battery commander. Trained with some Ukrainians that time, which we'll, we'll definitely get into. And then I was uh, fortunate enough to be in 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, for, for two years at JBLM, where I deployed twice, including one very normal depo- deployment and uh, the exfil from, from Bagram. So now I'm at Bragg, center of the universe, as they say. Uh, couldn't be happier. And I'm really excited to talk today. Well, thank you, CJ. I appreciate that you left out your your birth into the Modern War Institute, key player in our creating of the Institute and, and being the voice, even in the Cadet Corps, about how awesome it was. But I, I forgive you for that. And we'll have, <laughs> to, we'll have to not use so many acronyms. You know, I've been out since 2018. Try to spell them out for us, like FDO. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the because we'll talk about it a bit later in the artillery or field artillery or FA for short, there's sort of three different jobs you can have, sort of three realms. The first is fire direction, fire direction officer, and they're kind of what we call the brains of the operation and they do all the math for the guns. There's also sort of the battery commander side or the platoon leader side where you're actually on the guns, shooting them, getting them laid in, figuring out the positions. And then last but not least, FSO or fire support officer. And that's where you have a a team of forward observers or FOs and you're calling in the artillery. So really um, in the field artillery, we bounce around between all three. Uh, I'm relatively well-rounded in that regard. And, uh, you know, as we'll talk today, you know, these jobs could never be more connected, especially in a dense urban fight. 
Yeah, let's do it. So let's, but let's start off with, okay. I always like to like build like 101. Nobody's heard about fires. They don't even know what that means. Nobody's heard of artillery people, uh, the red legs, the king of battle, none of that. For a non-military listener of the podcast, which we have some, can you give us a general idea of what we mean by fires? Yeah, so uh, not to just spit off a doctoral answer, but to, to really get to the nitty gritty of it, you know, fires encompasses both lethal and non-lethal fires, and that's not a great definition because it uses the word in it, but basically you, you think field artillery, you think cannons, you think rockets, and now really there's so much more to it, which includes a lot of non-lethal fires that include cyber, even information operations is, is technically a part of non-lethal fires. So it's all different types of effects that support maneuver. Because at the end of the day, the, the job of the field artillery and the job of fires in, in our army is, is to support maneuver or the infantry and armor. Okay. I'm an infantry guy though. So I, I considered fires everything. Everything I could use to support maneuvers from mortars to fixed wing aircraft. Distinguish that term, does it really encompass everything or are you keeping it to an army-centric definition? So yeah, joint fires, you know, uh, there's a change in the designation a few years ago from forward observer to joint fires observers. And that's really what we want to be. We want to be experts, not just in uh, surface to surface fires, but air to ground and also naval fires. But, you know, to keep it real simple, as you kind of led to it, sir, there, there's two things in this world. There's artillerymen and there's targets. And I think that pretty much sums it up best. Don't you come on my show with your artillery talk. The listeners won't know that I approached you after branch night or after even when you when I knew you were graduating and disappointed since <laughs> you could have chosen because you were so high performing Italy infantry. You chose Italy artillery and that's fine. And I, But I, I know you drunk the Kool-Aid, but don't come on my show with some of that. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the explanation. Let's get to the nitty gritty though, because all fires are not the same. There's precision fires. There's wide area fires. There's things that go boom. There's there's things that go really big booms. As a kind of general outlook, what are the fire assets, the fire's assets that the U.S. military, let's, let's start with conventional forces, a brigade, would have for use in an urban battle? Of course, yeah. So you look at what we have uh, the most of, uh, starting with that, not necessarily what I do, but we have you know armor brigade combat teams, which have paladins, right? So for those that don't know, it looks a lot like a tank, but oh boy, it can do so much more. It's an armored um, self-propelled gun that comes along with an armored ammo loader. And this is something that's you know, we, we talked a lot about in the course about doing indirect and direct fire. And this is a weapon system really that can do both. And a brigade combat team will have about 18 of these in an artillery battalion in direct support. Next, of course, strikers, striker brigade combat team, which will have 18 towed triple sevens, uh, which is a 155 millimeter uh, howitzer. However, it is towed. It's a little slow, but it is a magnificent piece that we've seen in Ukraine just cause absolute havoc on the Russian lines. And then last, but certainly not least, the uh, Infantry Brigade Combat Team, which is all I've been a part of for my whole career. And that's what we have is a composite battalion with a mixture. It has a battery, so six guns of triple sevens. 
and two batteries of 105 millimeter howitzers, the M119 Alpha 3, a piece that is truly historic. You know, it, we've been doing slight variations on it really since World War One, with uh, only minor changes along the way. Uh, and these systems are all towed, so either to the back of a Humvee or back of an LMTV, FMTV, which are all just words for a bunch of different trucks. So they can't move on their own. They don't have protection for their troops, and they take a lot of manpower to run. But that's kind of the full spectrum from the conventional side. Additionally, you know, at the longer ranges, we of course have HIMARS, which uh, have got a lot of love over the last year, and that's a high mobility you know, multiple rocket system that has incredible range and precision. And then, of course, the MLRS, multiple launch rocket system, M270, which is basically a, a tank and a rocket system put together extreme long range. So the U.S. military, because the Marines are switching more to HIMARS and switching away from towed howitzers, we got a lot of range and we got a lot of firepower. But that doesn't always mean uh, the best uh, options in, in a close urban fight. When you're not trying to move 100 kilometers in a couple of days, you're just trying to move 100 meters. Yeah, and we'll get to that. And, and the differences, in, and I know we talked about in the course, and there's a spectrum of urban warfare, fighting in cities, and the type of fires, there's always constraints on the use of force once you enter the urban areas. By the law of war, the law of armed conflict, there are a lot of urban legends on there out there, what you can, you can't use, and I hope we get to some of that. I'm going to say, since it's my show, that if you're fighting in an urban area, your fire's assets, dependent on what you have, but that's a great rundown of mostly, would you say, 155 millimeter, 105 millimeter, and then all the rocket systems. It is. And you really can't forget something that's going to, it's been talked about a lot, maybe too much, maybe not enough. And that's, of course, the mortars that are in play in this urban fight and really, across, of course, across the army. So for the Marine Corps with, you know, they're they moving away from rifled mortars to your BCTs, which of course have 120s, 81s, and 60 millimeter mortars. So again, this will be a really key part in bringing it all home uh, in a city. You think I'm going to forget mortars? I was a mortar man. I was a 60 millimeter mortar man in 275. It's like artillery junior, sir. That's right. But in the in the the high angleness, hopefully we get to this, where if you go back, CJ, and listen to the second Battle of Fallujah, now General Rainey, who's Colonel Rainey, Battalion Commander 27, Task Force 27. And if you listen to it, I asked him what what's the the most decisive or you basically the most useful tool. For him in that most high intensity, but he had every asset he could possibly want from AC-130 Spectre gunships to using drones to spot artillery targets to fast jets, everything. And he said, because of the responsiveness, the precision and high angle of the 120 millimeter mortars, that was the tool that he found to be the most useful. What do you say about that? It certainly is a tool, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if they were just talking about just the invasion and the thunder run, I think they would have wanted to have a bit more than mortars. So there's certainly a time and place for everything. Right. Every city is different. Every battle is different. Let's get the precision stuff up front because I do want to get into advantages, disadvantages. Like I mentioned, one of the advantages of that organic mortars that some units will have and Ukrainians have it, you know, the 60, the 81 or the 120 for us is that it's, it's right there. It's responsive. It has a high angle. It can go ab above buildings and down. There's, there's less risk of 
the flight path, you know, skyscrapers and all these things in urban areas. But there is this aspect of the laws of war and distinction. And in the global war on terrorism, precision was a great asset where you could strictly identify the building you want to take down and use these various precision guided munitions to do that precisely. Like I can low collateral damage munitions that I can put into a window on the floor of a building that I want to hit. I can laze it. I can do all these different things. Could you just give us a, a handful of things like Excalibur and all the precision kits and things like that that have increased the precision of fires over the last few decades? Yeah. So, you know, really when it comes down to it, I, I, I can't speak on the plethora of Air Force munitions, but certainly there are lots. But there's sort of two trains of thought with this. Um, as, you know, most of the global war on terror vets will tell you, you know, yes, we were trying to be precise, but another major concern was collateral damage, of course, you know, which basically refers to the idea that if you want to hit something, you just want to hit that and you don't want to cause any more damage than necessary, which may seem counterintuitive in artillery, but I, but I promise you, we're not trying to blow everything up, just the very specific places in points and times. But these two things are very different, and I can't stress that enough. Something like an X-Cal munition, which is a 155 um, artillery round that can be fired from lots of different guns across the world that are 155, you know, it has a very low CEP or circular error probable, meaning, you know, it's going to hit the same spot every time that you want it. But at the end of the day, it's still a hundred pound round that blows up. So it is going to be devastating no matter what you do to mitigate it. And there's a lot of ways to mitigate it. With all of these precision guided munitions, you can have them air burst above a building. If you just want it to hit the target that's on the roof, this is beneficial because you aren't destroying the building, but at the same time, you may be showing throwing shrapnel and fragmentation all over the streets, which you may not want to do. So if you look at that problem set and say, well, uh, everyone in the building is an enemy. So because we've done lots of collection and determined this, let's use a delay fuse setting. So the rounds will not detonate on impact. It'll go into the building and detonate. Well, have you accounted for the fact that if that building falls over onto another building, you're causing more damage than before. So with all these things, and this is really what I want to get home today, you need to make these decisions at the front of the urban battle. This is not something that can be done at you know brigade and division headquarters where they don't necessarily have the best grasp or the best situational awareness on how the urban environment is changing and evolving in front of them. Because unlike large-scale combat in an open field, you know the, the worst thing you're going to do is you know crater a road or maybe burn a forest. You're not going to change the actual landscape of a battle in such a dramatic way. So I could talk for hours about all the different weaponeering effects, but there is basically a, a, a pro and a con for each. And there's plenty of options for artillery. And the last thing I'll say, there's plenty more coming. And this is the really key thing. The Long Range Precision Fires Program, which is one of the top modernization priorities of the Army, is going to make the field artillery more lethal and longer range with artillery rounds that can hit up to 150 kilometers. So somewhere between you know 80 and 100 miles in 2030. So this uh, branch is here to stay, and it's going to have even more of a role in urban combat in the future. Yes, I know your branch is here to stay. You don't have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get the precision out of the way. Of course, militaries want to be as precise as possible. But in the urban fight, there is an aspect of concrete penetration, a contested urban defense, which me and my fellow urbanistas attribute to Colonel Amos Fox, 
the precision paradox, which was a thing developed over, especially, you know, against the fight of ISIS, where yes, we can precisely identify a target, but if the enemy knows that and has prepped the defense and can maneuver from one building to the next, you end up precisely destroying every building in the city over time because that's the precision paradox. Yes, you can precisely identify it, but the unique advantages to a urban defense, especially a planned urban defense, like the Battle of Mosul, which was you know, developed over two years, you know, use your precision. And most people don't know that the U.S. military and all our planning, all our might, all our stockpiles um, ran out of Hellfire missiles because that's a very, a, a very versatile precision-guided munition that forces can use. But we we're using it so much in the Battle of Mosul in support of Iraqi forces that we ran out and we couldn't generate the stockpile, which is another conversation about. The fact that we've provided Ukraine 2 million artillery rounds, 1.5 millimeter artillery rounds so far, and it's not enough. And there are production issues. I won't ask you that yet because I want to get to the, as you know, I'm a big fan of military 101. Like, look, we need to know the basics. So generally, as a fires officer, and I know you're you also on a fires advisor usually at the table, at the planning room, what are the general advantages and disadvantages of fires in urban warfare? You know, it seemed like we had it all figured out with an Excalibur round or a PGK round, which is a precision guidance kit, which is about a tenth of the cost of Excal, and you just it's just a fuse you can screw on to a 155, and also the PGK kits for the 120-millimeter mortars. It seemed like all of our problems were going away because we weren't going to have to adjust fire at all. And we were just going to hit the uh, the target and and nothing else, so no you know limited collateral damage. But as you sort of already stated, you know you get in this mindset where the targeting process, which is different at every echelon, starts to blend in with each other. And by that I mean, you know these rounds are very limited, even in the worst case situations. You know you won't have the ability to draw on these all the time, and so now you're stuck in a situation, especially as we talk about mitigating harm to civilians and target engagement authority, where you don't want to be waiting on someone or a JAG officer or something like that to prosecute a target because that that target may, in the case of Mosul, bound to another building uh, and may cause more harm to civilians and your own troops in the very new future. So what we're trying to get out of as we look towards LISCO is this idea, how do we make unguided artillery just as accurate in an urban fight, but it's difficult. It's, it's difficult even with PGMs. For example, the altitude is something we hold very near and dear to our hearts in the fire direction. Basically, we need to know exactly how tall a target is, how high off the ground it is, to know when exactly that round bursts in it in the air. But if we have no sense of what buildings are left or how tall those buildings were, our rounds could explode anywhere in the city. And and that goes the same thing for precision guided munitions as well. So, you know, it's a sort of a two-way street. We have to explain to commanders how these rounds can be used very precisely with the right observers in the right place in the right time and understand those real cases when we actually have to use PGMs. Because there are cases, especially for high-value targets, for when you need exact precision, that it's going to be a real important thing to have in your reserve, not out of. Wasn't it you that taught me that the Excalibur actually has a lower yield than a regular because it has the precision stuff in it? It has a a, a lower boom in my parlance? A a slightly less one. I I would say I wouldn't want to be in the receiving end of one uh, no matter what the case is. No, right. Yeah. I thought, you know, as, as, you know, I'm a, I mean, I love concrete. So for me, one of the 
advantages of using fires in urban warfare and why the tank is still vital in urban warfare and why the no matter if you're attacking or defending, the one who's going to prevail is the one who can combine arms the best, infantry, mobile protected firepower, and fires, engineers. Concrete is hard to penetrate. And one of the greatest tools that we have at, at our discretion is a echelon of fires. And we do that, but in once you enter the urban terrain, the disadvantage is that there are protected populations, protected sites. Um, there are heavy clad concrete steel reinforced buildings that you can put a lot of fires on and might not have the effect. I know you guys always talk about what's the effect you want to have. I want the enemy dead inside that building. That is a challenge because of the unique defensive properties of some buildings. And this is the thing that's, it's um, really a, a double-edged sword, you know, in an open field, I can account for so many variables and we have to in fire direction to make sure we're, we're getting good effects. You know, the wind speed, the, the moisture, the humidity, the temperature, you know, the exact uh, 10 digit grid this location's at, our 10 digit grid, where we're firing from and the pr- propellant temperature. There's so much that goes into getting accurate rounds. But when you talk about a city, there's so many variables that play off each other. It really becomes quite complex. So a round that on one day might destroy the enemy, a building might save their lives and it might hurt civilians and vice versa. So these effects are both, especially when it comes to concrete and glass, there's some explosive effects that you don't want spreading out that will be spread out by the urban terrain. And there's other effects which you don't want to be mitigated that are. And so this sort of level of understanding is held at places like the precision weaponeering course or the precision fires course, which includes collateral damage estimation, target mensuration, et cetera. Won't go into the details of the specifics of that course, but this is a, the type of course where you learn about building structures, you learn about weapons effects. So happy to have gone and really learned about all this stuff while I was in the 173rd because it didn't just make me a, a better fire supporter. It just made me a better maneuver planner as well to give better uh, advice and guidance because as field artillery men and women go up the ranks, you know, they kind of go away from the guns, go away from the radios calling in the shots and they become, you know, the fist cord or the, the fire sport coordinator for a maneuver unit. And they really have to be experts in their craft in letting that infantry man or woman know what is going to be coming down the pipe and what you're really trying to do. So these are the type of courses we got to try and get as many people as possible to, because they will make a huge difference in quickly and lethally and safely executing fires in all different types of terrains. Yeah. Very well said. So you, you made me think of why urban warfare is so hard, you know, and, and that's a podcast you can go back and listen to, but in the end, fires is such a huge part of achieving the goal, whether defending or attacking in intense urban terrain, it is a great tool to achieve the objective as fast as possible when done correctly. Now, that's going to be a hard softball up there. I'd like to use the vignette of even the U.S. Army's biggest training exercises where they try to exercise the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the use of fires in urban area with the attack of the city Rajish, which is a deliberate attack seize the city, use all the tools you have, usually an armored brigade combat team. But what you usually see is challenges and fires being employed both outside the city and shaping the operation. 
And usually, you know, that's long range strikes against enemy locations to providing smoke since we really haven't mentioned that smoke. If you listen to my last podcast is a great need in urban warfare and fires provides a lot of smoke um, and can, can mask or conceal forces at critical moments like breaching the outside or breaching or maneuvering, things like that. But what's the things you've seen work best in planning and using fires in a, you said LISCO, which is a large-scale combat operation in urban warfare? So the biggest thing, and I don't want, because I completely agree, of course, and um, the course really did a great job of sort of explaining how complex urban operations can be. It is a lot of the basics for artillery, and that goes to what we call the echelon of fires. And the idea with that is you're using your different fires and uh, basically indirect and direct fire weapons together at critical moments in space and time to achieve all the effects you're looking for. The big three, of course, for artillery are suppress, neutralize, and destroy. And an example of that, you know, in the town of Rosicia's you know, it's being attacked normally by an armored brigade combat team. And so in that case, you could start hitting the objective with paladins, you know, the, the M109 Alpha 6 and now Alpha 7s. And you can do that with, uh, well, rocket assisted propellant or Excal from 30, 40 kilometers away. You could be shaping the objective, whether that's, you know, you have a long range drone and you can see uh, where a command post is, or you see where they're digging a trench or placing obstacles 30 or 40 kilometers out, which for an ABCT might be a day, for an infantry brigade combat team might be a few days, but the the you know the effects are the same. And obviously the transitions are always the toughest part. The transition from 155 to 105, the transition from you know 105s to 120s, meaning that handover from artillery to mortars. And then last but not least, arguably the most important for everyone is that handover from indirect weapons to direct fire weapons, because it all boils down in a, any environment, but especially in an urban environment where people can be shooting at you uh, from every single angle, that dilemma of fires. And the dilemma of fires is the idea that you want to put your enemy in a very tough spot. You want to be shooting them indirectly and directly at the same time, giving them two options. They can stay where they are and die from indirect fire, or they can try and displace and die from direct fire. And so, you know, no matter what the scale is, whether you're talking brigade on brigade or you're talking all the way down to that squad trying to fight one other squad, you always want to be giving them that problem set. And it doesn't have to be, you know, we talk a lot about ratios, three to one, 18 to one. To me, it's more about the effects and not just because I'm an artilleryman, but because as you know, from personal experience, you don't necessarily always need those large ratios, but you need them at certain points in time. And that's what fires can do. Fires can bring in that combat power at a moment's notice and turn the tide, no matter where you are, as long as you're within range of the guns. Right. And I agree that that's the basic ideal. The echelon of fires. So basically, if you had an urban area, draw concentric circles out from your objective and you have the longer range system. As you get closer, some of those systems turn off. But unfortunately, what, what gets trained often is that once you seize a foothold, most of that stuff is turned off. If it wasn't you know in the fire's execution matrix or if it wasn't, if it's not drilled into the forces that no, not all that stuff's not turned off. Yeah, maybe now you have to do dynamic targeting. But this is what I see on the, the ideal of kind of the echelon of fires. Like as I get closer, 
turn off these systems. And, and then once I get a foothold, now it's an infantry fight, which is, as you know, my big thing is it's not an infantry fight. If it's a contested urban fight against a peer enemy in Lisco, you better bring fires and have the capability to employ the, all those fires. There's no turning them off, but you have to have that dynamic capability and understanding that what solutions are best for the problem, like strong points or covering what gap crossings, things like that. And that's the thing, you know, it's so funny because it seems to happen every time, right? Everyone's, if you're in the military, you probably know the drill. You have extremely smart uh, targeting warrants in in brigade fires, officers and NCOs that have lots of experience. They want to take out these high priority targets. So very rare and, and unique capabilities the enemy has in the city. You take those out. The maneuver guys, they want to plan SOSRA, you know, which is the, the method in which you use fires to breach so that you have fires for suppression and fires for obscuration. And that's kind of where it stops. You know, you have to think through, as always, the entire objective. But if you don't have, you know, ammo pre-positioned for that key point in time, you know, you have to be planning obviously ahead. But the, the one thing I want to stress here is, you know, how can we better plan fires in an urban environment? Well, fires needs to work more closely with intelligence. You know, how are the people moving through the city? How are civilians using certain roads? How are the enemy using certain roads? All these things can be used to plan targets safely. And it's something we're just not very good at because we, we don't have those reps. And I think with, with a bit more time, hopefully, and a bit more focus, we can get after it because you know, a lot of times, especially in urban terrain, there's patterns that can that can emerge. And even if you're not exactly sure and you don't have access to all the information, you can still lay guns on certain targets, even if you don't know you're going to shoot them. But what this does is it makes it more responsive. So you always want to be planning. You always want to be planning forward. And even if there's, you know, it's quiet, that doesn't mean the guns aren't adjusting from point to point. I agree. Okay. Let's stop talking in theory in the way it's supposed to work, and let's talk Ukraine. Let's talk what you've seen, and we better talk about urban fights like Kiev, Mariupol, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Bakhmut. We better talk about those, but I, I know from personal knowledge that you've watched them all. And, you know, I have things I want to hit, like the use of drones as the most used observation tool instead of forward observers the use of drones to reducing strong points to the Russian way, the Ukrainian way, but let's, let's just get into it. What you've been watching, I know you have Ukraine from day one and what have you observed in the field of fires um, that reinforces what you learned in training? What is a surprise? What is you different? What, what is we should all remember in urban fights and what we're seeing there? Like, give it to me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, got to start with what happened on February 24th, 2022, which is, you know, what I walked into sort of watching this conflict from afar, what kind of knowledge I had. And it was what had been beaten into me for better or worse from 2014, because, you know, like it or not, the U.S. Army had been watching the war in Ukraine, you know, starting in 2014 till that point in time. And what lessons did I have walking into that? Well, I sort of knew that Ukraine was uh, operating in a very decentralized way, meaning they weren't putting a a bunch of guns close together. They were fighting a single artillery pieces. And I also knew they used a lot of drones. And with that in mind, you know, being stationed in the 173rd, you know, our main task and purpose was to be ready to go at a moment's notice for any sort of conflict that happened in Europe, which 
was probably going to be related to Ukraine in one way or another. And so that was the mindset I went into it with. And what I saw over the last year and a half, it's it's been incredibly shocking. So starting off between that February and April timeframe, when there was not much foreign aid coming in, one huge thing was coming in. And by foreign aid at that time, I mean from the US or NATO countries, was ammo. Ammo was coming in by the hundreds of thousands, but not just any ammo. It was Soviet ammo, uh, which makes sense because and by Soviet ammo, I mean 152 and 122 millimeter. What this was doing was it was giving Ukraine's about a thousand artillery pieces a chance to survive and keep fighting as they were trained in all these other more advanced NATO systems. So right off the bat, can't start this discussion without talking about how those Eastern European countries, Poland, Lithuania, Czechia, and so on and so forth, gave an incredible amount of ammo. Because I think the one lesson, if you haven't learned anything about the war in Ukraine, you know people fire a lot of artillery uh, throughout the course. Okay. Is there a difference? We say that the Russian military is an artillery. I, some people have said, I don't say we, we say that our, that Russia is an artillery based army, as in they rely on artillery barrages to their front. And then they follow that with armor. And it's not necessarily, I think the way that other militaries approach it. Would you agree that Russia is an artillery based military? And what, how have you seen that play out and evolve? Yeah. So with, uh, you know, we call artillery in the U.S. Army the king of battle. They call it the god of war. And you know what does that mean? Those things sound very different. Well, of course, as I said in the beginning, fire supports maneuver. You know, everything in the U.S. Army is based uh, and supporting that infantry person getting across the finish line. Uh, you know, with as little of a battle as possible. For the Russians, they see it pretty differently. At least. I want to point out doctrinally, right? Because how they actually execute versus how they say they were going to are two somewhat different things. But basically the idea being they let the artillery do the heavier lifting. They pick, you know, basically it's more competitive to be an artillery officer for them, though it's considered a, a branch with much higher importance in their army. Maybe we should look like that too, but that's a separate point. But in any case, they try and shape and really execute the political will pretty much at the highest levels through fire. So what did we see on the first day of the war? Well, we saw massive uh, missile bombardments, but even on the smaller scale, the tactical scale, there's, you know, obviously there's so many uh, great writings on this, but that border uh, patrol up uh, north of Chernobyl, the first thing they were hit with were loitering munitions, right? So, so drones that are essentially a fire's asset, in my opinion, that are lethal. And that was the first thing they get hit with, you know, it, it, and it, that sort of pace never stopped. And we see it time and time again, their maneuver slows down when they don't have the fires to really, you know, execute the, the objective because it's not their maneuver guys doing the objectives. It's the fires people that are making all the difference. And that's a huge limitation if you can't get enough ammunition to the front, if your logistics are not extremely good, and if you've not planned through every contingency. So it's a plan that had them bring in literally thousands of artillery pieces. I mean, the amount of artillery they brought into Ukraine is about three to five times the number of pieces than the U.S. Army has total. But what do they have to show for it? Well, they have a lot of retreats. They have a lot of lost artillery pieces or captured artillery pieces. And they're in a situation where it's really hard to tell, but they've spent either between seven and 14 million rounds of artillery ammo, which of course they do it extremely indiscriminately uh, and not only destroy people, but destroy whole cities 
in their wake. So this seemed to fit the model of what we understood they would do. But as time went on, a lot of interesting things happened. I don't know which way you want to go with this because there's we got counterfire, we have UAVs, and uh, we have how they've adjusted to um, lowering uh, consumption rates. So I'll, I'll let you decide. I can't pick. Go for it. I mean, you, you're the expert. Well, so uh, UAVs, right? So unmanned aerial vehicles, the U.S. Army has some, but as we sort of discussed in the course, you know, I don't know how many people have taken out their Raven recently, which is the company size. Don't get me started. It's uh, I know it's your favorite, but it is not very responsive, uh, a little bit hard to see, um, and it is designed to crash on impact. So again, uh, I'm sorry if you made the Raven. It's uh, probably could be a bit better. But what I mean to say is, you know, when we talk about fires, the goal of the U.S. Uh, artillery community is first round effects, right? What that means is you don't have to adjust. You're right on target the first time. But as we see with bad weather. Uh, bad target location or bad um, gun data, you know, you're going to miss. So you need to be able to respond quickly. So let's break that down to how the Ukrainians do it. Well, 70% of their observers and uh, field artillery observation is done from the sky. So they are able to have much more accurate and precise adjustment data than we would two-dimensionally. So, you know, as we look towards what good lessons we, we should take away, that's a massive one, but it also cuts down on consumption. I know, you know, I heard a couple podcasts from Roman, who was a fighter um, in a recon unit in Izium, and, and this is something that's been spread far and wide by many other cases where the triple sevens, when they arrived in April, would only have to adjust one or two times to hit their target, whereas the Russians at that point in time were having to adjust up to 20. Now, this may sound like an exaggeration, but I mean, you've seen the field, sir, yourself, and you've seen how much ammunition is expended. Russians have a lot of time um, hitting a target. And the only way they can do that is with UAVs. So if their UAVs are down, then they're in a very bad situation where, you know, we've seen Ukrainian artillery pieces be in the same spot for an entire month, which is unthinkable for our, our guys that love to shoot and scoot. But this is just the nature of it, that you can stay in one place and not get worried about the Russians shooting you because they have to see you from the sky in order to do that. Amazing. So I won't make you say it, the Raven and a U.S. Army Brigade combat team invalidated on our recent trip to the National Training Center the UAV assets that a, a conventional brigade would have, let's say in the battalions. Of course, the company, the brigade itself has some other assets, but it's the Raven and the Black Hornet. Both of those, not the tool you need in a modern battlefield. And I'll go very specific to just, okay, fine, urban warfare. It ain't going to help you contested urban warfare where you need it, something that flies more than up around the corner. Yeah. It's not the tool. If anything coming out of Ukraine, it's even in just fires is that you need to have a lot of them. They need to be cheap. They need to be expendable. They need to be accurate. You just need a lot of them. You know, I'm not saying they're going to replace King of battle. And, and I got that, uh, but you need a lot of them, but that's pretty fascinating. So let me give you the hard question, CJ strong points. So, all urban warfare is not the same. And we've seen that even in Ukraine, you know, where a fast uh, maneuvering urban battle um, that lasts weeks versus a protracted urban battle where he who holds the defensive or the key terrain can hold it for a long time because it's really hard to get a defender out, especially if they know how to identify correctly strong point criteria, which is actually a lost art 
to identify which buildings to strong point from. But use one of the most effective tools that you're going to have to use to do a strong point reduction is fires, right? And that's what we've seen in places like Bakhmut. Why is every structure in Bakhmut destroyed? John Spencer's opinion, and hopefully I'll be there in July. And again, I hate Mike Kaufman for having gone without me, is the fact that most of the buildings on the Western side are Soviet built apartment blocks that are heavy clad concrete with basements, which we haven't talked about, um, as in the disadvantage for fires and urban terrain is that there's a subterranean. And historically that has been the refuge, the protect your, your fighters, your civilians, your equipment. So in Bakhmut, you can see the smoldering apartment blocks on the West side because the Ukrainians smartly made Wagner or Wagner or whatever, or the VDV pay for every inch using the urban strong points as in buildings that are really tough to deal with. The question that I have for the person I view as the, the expert in urban warfare is that what does it take to achieve the effect you want, which is to produce a strong point and move forward because it's a terrain-based or an enemy-based objective? What does it take to take down a five-story, or not take down, to reduce a strong point from being an effective strong point using fires? Yeah. Do I, uh, do I want to hit you with a Met TC? No, I would not do that to you, sir. I, <laughs> I tried to give you as much as possible, right? It's reduce a strong point. The building is a five, you know, three, let's say a five-story heavy clad building with a basement that has a enemy, let's say, squad or a platoon defending from it. So first off, it takes trust. Uh, I know that may be a weird place to start, but if you, uh, if you think about it, you know, obviously you could sit there and I could, you know, run the math. I could tell you it's going to take 1,200 rounds of artillery, but there's a lot of ways to go about it, right? Because if the strong point is on the roof, or let's just say the fifth floor, because they're not that dumb, we're going to say, you know, now it's going to take some planning where as we saw in Bakhmut, saw a triple seven round go through a, a dang window, and that only took two shots to get right, right? And there goes your strong point, or at least most of the people in there, because you get a very accurate shot. But if you look at how our doctrine is set up currently, you know, we have minimum minimum refinements and minimum adjustments, you know, the adjustments being 50 meters to adjust around quickly onto target. Well, as you know, some buildings are much shorter than 50 meters or you know, not as long as 50 meters. So how do you set up a process which can allow you to get very precise targeting data to that gun? Well, you need to be laid in ahead of time. You have to do a lot of preparation, uh, mainly on the intelligence side, to know where exactly you're going to put your guns so you can do it with the minimal rounds possible, not just for saving the building as much as possible or um, saving collateral damage in general, but for saving rounds because I mean, you look at Bakhmut, you know, a town of 70,000 or a city, sorry, a city of 70,000, you know, taking nine months, if you're, you know, using 10 times as many rounds as you need, you, you know, you might be in a situation where you have to really have a hard conversation. Are you trying to suppress that strong point? Are you trying to neutralize it? Are you trying to destroy it? What's, what's the end state? But I'd offer up maybe something different, right? Which is talking and trusting the infantry counterparts on the ground. Maybe that strong point is in has been put there based on the criteria put out because it has a commanding view over the road. Well, what if you take down the two smaller buildings in front of it that completely negate it 
as a good strong point, and now you've created essentially a wall to go around, right? There's a whole bunch of different ways to look at that, or you look at you know just taking out the lower floors in order to you know basically make it so it's very unsturdy or unstable underneath. Um, and over time, you know, you can be use these with combined arms with perhaps tanks, which have a lower elevation. They can't get to those higher buildings. And, and this is where these sort of things like graphic control measures and fire support coordination measures really have to become three-dimensional, which isn't how we train. So that really is the first step, trusting the infantry brethren, understanding what they're really trying to do with that strong point so we can get, you know, a, a good set of fires on it. Cause it might take Sosra, right? It might take white phosphorus in front of that strong point in order to obscure the enemy. It might take, you know, high angle rounds through the roof and it might take low angle rounds to reduce the, the section of it on the side. So there's so many options available. It, it really is going to be dependent on what you're going for, but it cannot happen without understanding what that task force on the ground is going for. Nice. No, that's well said. Uh, a lot there that I want to unpack. One is that there's an urban legend. You can't use white phosphorus in urban terrain. That's just a myth. So one, you just, your entire, you know, two minute there was basically saying to me, more people need to go to the 40th Infantry Division's Urban Operations Planner course, where we unpack so much of that in, in a high intensity list go fight against a defending enemy in a very dense urban area where all of those things come into play, angle of fire, understanding the actual urban area you're, you're fighting on and identifying pre-identifying strong points and then what does that mean all of that uh, fascinating um, to include that three-dimensional aspect of grid reference guides grgs to understand what you're going to need and plan for the tools you're going to need to do the mission most effectively and the least amount of collateral damage because that's the way one thing you mentioned though is and i actually had this question and, and you brought it up while we were visiting the National Training Center, part of the 45th Division course, because it's a strong connection, is you mentioned tanks. For some reason, I think culturally, we're still not there with the tank will be a vital need in the urban fight, protecting the infantry, infantry protecting the tank, giving the infantry another tool to put effects on that defensive position, which happens to be a building. But why... Um, do we have a cultural lack of knowledge that historically in major urban battles, many artillery systems or others have been that are primarily used in other methods, but in the urban fights where things like strong points start to become a daily, I mean, there's been battles like in the Battle of Manila, you fought weeks over a single building where direct fire artillery becomes a very effective tactic in use in urban terrain. But for some reason I, I go around and culturally it's not even thought of or disregarded as like, we don't do that. I think, you know, in World War II, in terms of the roles that artillery had, I mean, it was much more diverse. Most rounds and most pieces had a dual role, especially at that, you know, between 88 millimeter and 105 millimeter um, size, 
where they're designed to both be, you know, anti-personnel, anti-tank, and indirect. And with the, the 50s and 60s, you get the, the first batch of anti-tank missiles, and it kind of takes that fight entirely away from artillery. And so for people's awareness, there's this thing called direct fire, which is a, essentially a mode. You can fire a cannon <laughs> directly at a, a vehicle or a building, and there's a sight to it. But what we don't train is necessarily how to adjust that with indirect fire, especially if you're trying to shoot through smoke, you're trying to shoot just at that critical uh, gap between indirect and, and direct fire, which at some points becomes a little bit pedantic in terms of what you want to call it. But regardless, it's it's sort of a lost art, you know, perhaps for good reason. But the reason I think we should maybe look at it a bit more is when you start to understand how much explosives you need to take a city, you know, being having served a bit with range regiment, I watched the guy's breach with just, you know, cable after cable, water explosives, all the different types of breaching kits that they had. And it was a lot of gear. And that was just for a single building. And so you kind of scale that out. You have to look at tanks for, for opening up holes, mouse holing, of course. You look at AT4s, especially all the modified versions to, to take out walls. And, and then you look, what, what can artillery provide? Could artillery provide, uh, you know, sort of a gap, you know, because it comes down to it and you only have artillery left, you, you know, we always say a WIFM, which is a long acronym, but all it really means is, you know, field artillery is weighted behind the main effort. And so you have to be able to sell yourself to that infantry commander that, hey, I can do this, but, you know, we need to train it. You know, I couldn't tell you exactly what an artillery round does to a building when fired in a direct fire mode because it's not something that's trained. Yes, it's in the table certification, but it's, you know, when we go to a live fire range for direct fire only once a year. And it's not necessarily against the building target. It becomes something as a commander. I definitely want to try and do a bit so I can give a better answer. And the answer might not be one that people like, but we, we can't know until we try. And this is something we know has worked in the past at that golden era, the golden age of artillery when we were doing anti-air, anti-tank, anti-personnel, and, and pretty much everything in between. No, awesome. Now, I don't have time to to really pose the bigger question about is it still firing to maneuver or in the urban fight uh, about key terrain are we maneuvering in order to fire on the objective i'd like to do that i don't have time i want to ask you the big last question i know there's something in ukraine i know there's been many things that have excited you whether it's the use of the game changer immediate game change that we saw when the MLRS was introduced into Ukraine and then given the resources and how they used that, or like you said, that the drone use in urban battles, what has excited you reinforced, reinvigorated something that you, you are taking to your soldiers and saying like, this is why we're doing these things. Ukraine should be being used by everybody in the US military as a window into a modern battle using all the equipment. And that could be your the thing, right? It could be the feedback from the use of our equipment from M777 to MLRS and the feedback that's coming from that to like, look that we have to think about direct firing buildings in, in certain contexts when the, when the fight evolves to this protracted, almost positional fight that urban warfare can drive you to. It doesn't always have to. You can still maneuver. You can outmaneuver. You can encircle. You can, like we saw in Harrison, but these tactics, like what, what excites uh, CJ about the fires 
observations, lessons learned out of Ukraine? The two biggest things would have to be first and foremost how the Ukrainian army especially is trusting junior leaders to make big decisions about fires, uh, mainly on the cannon artillery side. But you know when, when they are calling for fire, whether it's a pre-planned or dynamic target, especially with quadcopters that are, are very cheap and probably only at the squad level, they're trusting that, that squad or platoon to, to make some big decisions about how the battle goes. And while the U.S. Army, you know, we train that way, you know, one of the dangers about centralizing fires, you know, bringing back Devardi and having these massive fire missions is we forget that those junior soldiers, um, you know, NCOs and lieutenants that are making those calls need those assets when they need them and really practicing that trust because it's, it's a difficult thing. You put all of your artillery battalions into a Devardi. So you have 56 guns or sorry, 54 guns ready to go. Um, you know, you're going to want to save them for big division fire missions. And, and sometimes as we've seen in this war time and time again, they only need a triple seven for a day to take a trench or to take out a strong point at a building that's been harassing them for weeks. And so that, that sort of trust that those soldiers have with artillery is just an incredible thing to watch and, and we should definitely emulate. The other thing too, we talk a lot about large-scale operations being degraded or fighting in situations where we don't have air supremacy. And this war is a, a, a case study for what that would look like and not just a situation where they don't have air supremacy and can't rely on aircraft and close air support, but also in GPS-denied environments. We're seeing, as the Washington Post reported, the Russians have figured out how to jam HIMARS on occasion, and they have figured out how to jam PGK on occasion. You know, they have counter space operations, things like that, that we have to deal with and think about when we're fighting a near peer. But there's one thing you can't jam, and that's a hundred pound artillery round coming at you. There's not much you can do with the current technology, which we can talk about at some other time, that's really going to stop that. It's an all weather, all terrain weapon. And that's really what I'm really happy to see the Army getting back to, especially in the last three or four years. This idea that, especially as we saw in Afghanistan, bad weather, high altitudes, what do we have? We've got artillery and we've got mortars. So building that trust, understanding the limitations, it's been a great thing to come out of this conflict. And hopefully people are taking that as a lesson learned that you will, you know, no matter what advanced cyber and EW capabilities you're going up against, you'll still have artillery. That's right. And that's what I've taken is even the ideals of what the future of war might look like. Yes, AI, robotics, all that need to stay on it. But the modern battlefield, artillery is still king of the battle. Oh, and it, it always will be, at least for a little while longer, we'll say. <laughs> we'll see. But I mean, I, I'm honest and, and you know that that hurts me a little bit. Well, CJ, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation about fires in urban warfare and you know, with the no better context of real lessons and observations and vignette of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And if you can get a chance to get down to the course at the Urban Warfare Center, don't miss it. It's a, a great opportunity. And I learned so, so much. And hopefully I can go back and maybe teach a class next year. I mean, I wanted that this year, but yes, absolutely. It would bring me no greater pleasure as a director of urban warfare training in the 40th Infantry Division to have CJ Drew as our fires and urban warfare instructor. Thanks, CJ. Awesome. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern Wars 2 at West Point 
What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out Individualized other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.